Thank you. Good morning. How are you today? Are you happy? We're very excited to be here. In fact, I'm extra excited to be here with my beautiful wife this time. And as I was sharing last night in the 5 p.m. service, that uh, I'm extra excited because this is her first trip to Asia. And uh, we've discovered over the last few weeks that she also loves durian. And uh, so... I get to enjoy durian with my wife, so it's wonderful, amen. But uh, I'm excited about what God is going to do today here in this place, and I'm looking forward to sharing what God's put on my heart. And I want to share with you about miracles, if that's okay. And do you mind if I just have a little bit, I might just turn this if that's all right. I just need a little bit of fallback here on the stage, but... uh, I'm going to talk about miracles. One of, the, one of the greatest miracles, miracle workers in the Old Testament was a prophet by the name of Elisha. And when you have a look at Elisha's life and the works that he did, he was a type of Christ. In fact, his name means my God is salvation, which uh, is very similar to the meaning of the name of Jesus. Their miracles paralleled each other. And uh, so we pick up Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19, and we find him there as the son of a wealthy landowner. But he wasn't one of these rich sort of snot kids who had a sense of entitlement. But we find him out in the field plowing in the hot day sun with a yoke of oxen, just along with some of his father's other servants. And one day he is taken by surprise when the great prophet Elijah comes and throws his mantle over his shoulders. Now, Elisha knew what this meant. So he said, let me go and say goodbye to my mother and father, which he did. And then he came back and he took the yoke and the plow that he was using, smashed them up and made a fire. He killed the oxen that he was using, chopped them up, cooked them up on the fire, and gave the pieces of meat to his fellow workmates. Now, it's obvious that he had no intention of going back to his secular employment after sensing the call of God on his life. Amen. But also, he probably at that moment gave up his inheritance, and he went to follow the great prophet Elijah. And for a number of years, he served under Elijah and took on the the mantle. You could say he learned of the office of the prophet and became a prophet in his own right until it came the day when Elijah was going to be taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. Does anybody know anyone who was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind? My mum was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. True story, during my mum's funeral, 2007, we were in the church and everything was going as normal. Then suddenly we heard commotion outside the building and then we heard sirens, not knowing exactly what had happened until we came out of the building to discover a huge tornado had come from the ocean and right through the middle of the city, gone up the street adjacent to the church and my mum went up to heaven in the whirlwind. I thought, good on your mum, amen. But uh, this particular day, Elijah was going to be taken up in a whirlwind. He was on a bit of a mission. He was going from place to place. He was going from, from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho and eventually to the Jordan. And every time he went from one place to the next place, he'd say to Elisha, you wait here for the Lord has called me to the next place. But Elisha kept on saying, oh no, as long as the Lord lives and as long as there is breath in your lungs, 
I am sticking with you. You see, Elisha knew Elijah was going to be taken that day. And he wanted something. He was going to get a hold of something before the great prophet was taken. And so he followed him from place to place until they eventually came to the Jordan River. And when they got to the Jordan River, Elijah took off his mantle and he struck the river. And the river split in two right in front of them. And the two of them walked across the dry ground to the other side. An amazing miracle. When they were walking along, Elijah said to Elisha, Mate, you've been hanging around me all day like a bad smell. What do you want? Well, he didn't actually say that. If he was Australian, he might put it like that. But what he said was, What can I do for you before I am taken away? And Elisha was ready. He had the $64,000 question right there, and he was ready with the answer. And he said, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Now, you would have thought that the great prophet Elijah would have turned to Elisha and said, what are you talking about? You know, he was, he was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. It was like Elisha was saying, you've got a great anointing, but it's not great enough for me. I want twice what you've got. You'd think the prophet Elijah would say, who do you think you are, you little upstart, you know? But instead he said, no, what you've asked for is a difficult thing. If you see me when I'm taken, it will be yours. Otherwise not. And then the very next verse, perhaps it was the very next moment, a chariot of fire comes swooping down from heaven and goes between the two of them and picks up Elijah. And Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind to the heavens. And as it takes place, Elisha shouts at the top of his lungs, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Apparently that's what you say if a great prophet is taken up to heaven. So keep that in mind for future reference, okay? But also, just remember this. In Scripture, there is a law of first mention. So when something's mentioned for the first time, you look at the context. Because when it's mentioned again, you look at the context and there are similarities. And what we find here in this moment, when Elijah was taken, and Elisha cried out, My father, my father, chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Heaven was opened to receive the prophet of God. And as heaven was opened, there was a blessing made available to who was there in that moment. And in that moment, it was Elisha. And in that moment, Elisha took hold of a double portion. Elijah dropped his mantle over the side of the chariot. It fell to the ground. Elisha took off his mantle, ripped it up, picked up the mantle of Elijah, put it on. It fit pretty good. So he walked down to the river. When he got to the river, he took it off. And then he struck the river. Where now is the God of Elijah? And sure enough, the river split in two. Right in front of him. Just as it had done for Elijah. You know, when Elijah split the river, that was the seventh miracle that Scripture records that he performed. When Elisha struck the river and split it in two, that is the first of 14 miracles recorded in Scripture that he performed. So he symbolically at least got his double portion anointing that he asked for. And I want to have a look at just three of Elisha's miracles this morning. And the first miracle is found in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1 to 7. 
And it's the story of the widow of one of Elisha's fellow prophets. The prophet had died. That's why the woman was a widow. But he died leaving his wife in debt. And so the debt collectors had come and they were threatening to take away her sons and force them into slave labor in order to pay back the debt. And this is where Elisha comes onto the scene. He says to the woman, what do you have in the house? To which she answers, oh, nothing but a flask of olive oil. Nothing but something. Why would you say nothing when you have something? Sometimes we feel what we do have is so small that it's nothing. We feel like we've got nothing to offer God. But God doesn't need what you don't have. He only needs what you do have. And when you give to God what you do have, then God's able to take that and do something with that and give to you what you don't have. Can you say amen to that? So Elisha said to this woman, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors, shut yourself in your house and pour olive oil from your flask into the jars and fill them up. So they had all these jars, all these jugs in their house, all these pots, whatever it was, and, and they took this little flask. It was just an omer of oil, enough oil for one anointing, for one person, and began to pour this oil into the first jug. And it just kept pouring. It kept pouring until the jug was filled to the brim. Then quickly to the next jug and filled that vessel to the brim and to the next one and to the next one. And this miracle was unfolding. This tiny little flask was filling up all of these vessels of oil, with oil. Until she got toward the last one, she started pouring into the last one. And as it was filling up, she said to one of her sons, quick, get me another one. And her son replied, there are no others. That's it. And that's one of those dope moments in Scripture. I don't know if you've ever had a dope moment. You know, it's like, oh, no. Why didn't we get more flasks? Why didn't we get more jugs? Why didn't we get more vessels? We should have gone to the Wong's house. I mean, the Wong's have got lots of pots all around the place. We could have tipped out the pot plants. We could have tipped out the fish tanks. We could have pulled the bathtub in. We could have filled out. The, we could have got so much more oil if only we had thought about it beforehand. Now, the Bible says that Elisha told them to go sell the oil that they got. And that was enough oil to pay their debts. And it was enough to look after them for the rest of their lives. But the question I'm asking this morning is, is that the limit of what God had in mind that day? Or did God actually have more in mind and they missed it? Because if we fast forward 800 years, when Jesus is feeding the multitudes, we know there was a number of times he did that. Let's look at when he fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. And it began with a little boy's lunch. The disciples, when they were looking around to try and find something to feed them, as Jesus said, they came across a little boy who had five loaves and two fish. They took the five loaves. They took the two fish. They brought it to Jesus again, feeling what they had to offer wasn't much. They said to Jesus, Lord, we've got this here, but what is this amongst so many? But again, we don't look at how small what we have to offer is. 
we bring it to Jesus and we bring to Jesus what we have, He's able to multiply that. He's able to do a miracle with what we bring to Him. And He's able to give to us and give to others what we can't do. Amen. But the amazing thing with this miracle, not only did Jesus feed the 5,000 men plus women and children, but there were 12 baskets of food left over. One for each of the disciples in that occasion. So each disciple had it firmly implanted in their mind that when Jesus provides, he provides more than enough. He doesn't just provide enough. He provides more than enough. He's the God of an abundance. Can you say amen to that? And 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 8, the Bible says, and God will generously provide all you need and you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. I love that principle in Scripture. See, God is a good God, right? He is a generous God. He's a giving God. He loves to give good gifts to His children. But because of that, He loves His children also to be like Him. And He blesses us that we in turn might also be a blessing to others around about us. And when He finds that we have a generous heart, when He finds that we have that, that desire to bless, He gives seed to the sower and He pours more and more blessing into our lives that He might bless others through us. More than we can contain. Amen. Now the other cool thing about this particular miracle is that oil in the Scripture also speaks of the Holy Spirit. And God will only stop pouring out His Holy Spirit when there are no more vessels thirsty to be filled. So I'm wondering this morning how many vessels are thirsty to be filled with God's Spirit. Amen. Give me a wave. You'd like God to fill you. Amen. And uh, also the great thing we find here, when Elisha's miracle was taking place, every vessel was filled to the brim. But when Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit, He doesn't just fill us to the brim. He fills us to overflowing. Amen. There's an outpouring through our lives. He fills us so that He can flow through us and, and He continues just to uh, allow this overflow through our lives to others. I was 16 years of age when I got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I quickly discovered the overflow. I quickly discovered that I was contagious, that God had poured something into me that I couldn't keep in myself. And I was in another meeting just about a year later, I was 17, and an evangelist was preaching and many people came for prayer and, and suddenly the evangelist grabs my hand and he said, you pray for him to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I didn't know what to do, never done it before, but I said, okay. I went over, I laid my hands on this young man, I said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. I didn't know what else to say, so I just prayed in tongues. And soon, he starts praying in tongues. I just went, woo, that was too easy, amen. And since that time, I've literally prayed for thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of people around the world to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's in smaller churches where there may be 20, 30 people. Sometimes larger churches might be two, 300, 400 people getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. Or in Africa, we have whole fields of people getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it's just so exciting just seeing the Holy Spirit flow. What He puts in us, He pours through us and others receive from us. 
And I'm a great believer, not just in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'm a great believer in impartation. Amen. And, and praying for, for people or having people pray for me. If somebody is doing something that I'm not doing, if I find someone who's raising lots of people from the dead, I say, come and lay your hands on me, man. I want to catch something of what you've got. If somebody's seeing more souls saved than I'm seeing, it's like, come and lay your hands on me. I want to catch something of what you've got. So I've had many of the great revivalists and evangelists around the world lay their hands on me, Benny Hinn and Reinhard Bonnke. I've had him lay his hands on me three times. In fact, Reinhardt's a little bit of a hero, a, ben, a mentor of mine. And uh, I had the privilege in, in November of 2017 of being invited as one of 40 evangelists from around the world. And Reinhardt personally invited us to come to Lagos, Nigeria, all expenses paid to his final farewell crusade, where not only were we there to witness a crusade with 1.7 million people, 845,000 recorded decisions for Jesus, so it was better than nothing, amen, but uh, it was, it was the, the passing of the flaming torch was the main reason that we were called. He, he officially passed his ministry to Daniel Kalenda, CFAN, but those of us that were invited and the pastors that were in the conference, he, he, he prayed for a special anointing, a flaming torch that we would take the baton that he's been carrying as he retired from crusade ministry. And I've got to tell you something, something shifted in my own life and ministry from that time. And, and I saw a fresh fire come on my ministry and I saw even the results, even in small churches, greater numbers of people responding to the gospel. And, and in these days, I'm sensing a great urgency. And it's like God is, is using these years which we have to bring in the last great days, a, a harvest of souls. And so wherever I've been going, speaking in churches and speaking in conferences, I've, I've also been praying for whoever wants to receive the flaming torch. I'm like, here, what I've received, freely I receive, I freely give it. You can have it, and I pray for others also to receive that flaming torch. I'm wondering how many people this morning might like to receive the flaming torch. Give us a wave, because we'll pray for you to receive that later on. That'd be awesome. The second miracle I want to look at is Elisha's 14th miracle. Both Jesus and Elisha raised both men and women and children from the dead during their ministry, adults and children. And uh, one time Jesus was so moved at a funeral of a widow's only son that she actually, he interrupted the funeral, stopped the procession, put his hand on the coffin and told the young man to sit up and he sat up in the, in the coffin and he gave him back to his mother. Pretty awesome, eh? And of course, we know the amazing miracle, the resurrection of Lazarus, just before Jesus' own death and resurrection. And Lazarus, who was a friend of Jesus, when he fell sick, Mary and Martha sent the message to Jesus, but he just let it sit for a while until Lazarus died, until he was buried. And Jesus said to the disciples, Lazarus is dead. Uh, sorry, he said, Lazarus has fallen asleep. The disciples said, that's, that's good. If he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus said, no, not that kind of sleep. Lazarus is dead. But I'm glad for your sakes I wasn't there. Funny thing for Jesus to say. He was glad his good mate Lazarus had died. And then Jesus eventually went to that town when Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days. And then Jesus said, take me to the tomb. In fact, Mary and Martha both said to Jesus first, Lord, if only you were here, Lazarus would not have died. 
And Jesus said, if only you believe. I am the resurrection and the life. Take me to where you've laid him. So they took Jesus to the tomb. And when Jesus got to that tomb, Jesus said, roll away the stone. They said, but Lord, he stinketh. That's the King James translation. He stinketh. That's all they thought was going to come out of the tomb was a bad smell. But Jesus, of course, said, Lazarus, come forth. And we know that Lazarus came out of the tomb that day, stomping out there in his grave clothes. And Jesus said, unwrap him and let him go. An awesome miracle. Amen. On the 2nd of December, 2001, Reinhard Bonnke was opening a 12,000-seat auditorium in a church in Anitsha, Nigeria. And as he was opening this, this church building, a woman by the name of Nanika Ikotruku brought her husband, Pastor Daniel, to the meeting. The only problem was Pastor Daniel had been killed in a car accident three days before. He had been in a morgue for two nights. He had been partially embalmed. He wasn't just dead. He was dead, cold, stiff, embalmed, dead. And she brought him to church believing that the anointing in the meeting would raise him from the dead. Of course, she had a little bit of an opposition trying to get the dead body into the church building as it was a big celebration Sunday. They wouldn't let her bring the church, the body into the main auditorium, so she took it down into the basement where he was laid on a table and a few people gathered around with her to pray for this body while the meeting was going on upstairs. And to everyone's shock and horror, this dead, cold, embalmed corpse began to breathe. So they started to rub the arms and legs because it was so cold. It was stone cold. They were rubbing the arms and legs, trying to get some circulation happening. And, and eventually, Pastor Daniel sat up. And uh, he was a little bit dazed to start with, but then came to, had no brain damage, nothing. He was normal having been killed in a car accident. And when you're killed in a car accident, your body gets smashed pretty heavy. He was completely healed and resurrected. Awesome. Amen. And the really cool thing is when I was in Lagos in November 2017, Pastor Daniel was in the bus with me as we were going to the crusade. So I was with a dead man in the bus. Praise God. Amen. Awesome. Now, I want to look at the second resurrection that Elisha performed. And the crazy thing is that he did this when he was dead himself. The story is found in 1 Kings chapter 13. It says there, verse 20, Then Elisha died and was buried. Now, Moabite raiders would raid the land of Israel every spring. And once some Israelites were burying a man and they spied the Moabite raiders storming over the hill. And they had a split second decision to make. Do we continue with this funeral, bury this man, and then the Moabite raiders will come kill us all and then they'll have to bury us? Or B, shall we throw him in the nearest body and get in the nearest tomb and get the heck out of here? They thought B was a good option. How many people think B would be a good option in that scenario, right? And so they just chucked this body in the nearest tomb, which happened to be the tomb of Elisha. 
Perhaps it was partially open. I'm not sure about that. But, but they threw the body in and turned and began to run. And as this body hit the bones of Elisha, resurrection power came into the body. And this man jumped up out of the tomb and he shouted to his mates, Hey guys, wait for me. And that's when the first four-minute mile was actually broken. You know, those guys, they took off that moment, got the fright of their lives. I mean, but we look at that and we think, what an incredible anointing Elisha had. So powerful was the anointing that it was, res it was resident in his bones when he was dead. But I believe this is one of the tragedies of Scripture. What the heck was, in, was Elisha's anointing doing in his bones when he died? Why wasn't his anointing passed on to his successor in the same way Elijah's anointing was passed on to him in a double portion? Why didn't he pass his anointing on to somebody else? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I have one more miracle to look at and that's the miracle of the healing of Naaman the leper. Naaman the leper. Naaman was the commander of the army of Aram. And Aram was another army that constantly came, raided Israel. They were raping and pillaging and burning villages and all of that. And then Naaman, the commander of the army of Aram, contracts leprosy. During one of his raids in Israel, he captured an Israelite girl who was a slave in his house. And so she said to him, if only my master would go to the prophet in Israel, you could receive healing from your leprosy. So now Naaman has a predicament. He's been attacking Israel constantly. Now he needs to go to Israel to receive healing. So he thinks, I better do this right. I better go through all the right protocol. And, and so he, he gets a whole lot of gifts together. In fact, he gets together 750 pounds of silver, which would be about 750,000 ringgit worth of silver and 150 pounds of gold, which would be about 12 million ringgit of gold. Plus, he took 10 Amani suits to give to whoever it was that was going to heal him of his leprosy. But not only that, you could imagine being the, the commander of the enemy's army and carrying such a bounty he would also have quite an entourage. He'd have quite a number of soldiers with him. And he took a letter from the king of Aram to present to the letter to the king of Israel because they were going through the right channels. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, who, of course, they were suspicious. What's this big mob doing here? And, in, and the letter said, with this letter, I present to you my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. Of course, the king of Israel began to freak out because he couldn't heal anybody. He thought, this is a Trojan horse. He's about to attack us. But then, of course, realizing he was leprous and was looking for the prophet, he was sent to Elisha's house. And when Naaman came to Elisha's house, Elisha didn't come out of the house. He sent his servant, his would-be successor, Gehazi, out with instructions to give to Naaman. And the instructions were simple. Go dip in the Jordan River seven times and you will be cleansed of your leprosy. Naaman got mad, actually. He said, this is a bit too simple, you know. Why didn't he come out and wave his arms around and evoke the name of his God? 
got all upset because he wasn't doing it the way he thought he'd do it. You know, I've been teaching about healing and not only praying for the sick myself, but I've been training churches in healing for years. And I do have a particular primary method, but I know it's not just about how you do something. It's more about who you're praying to and how much faith you have that God is going to do what you believe he's going to do. Because I've seen people break all the rules, but still believe that Jesus is going to heal someone and he heals somebody, you know what I mean? And so anyway, Naaman goes, he dips in the river, comes up the seventh time and he is cleansed from leprosy. So he comes back to to Elisha and he wants to lavish all of these gifts on Elisha. But Elisha doesn't want a bar of it. He doesn't want a bar of silver. He doesn't want a bar of gold. He doesn't want nothing from, from Naaman because he knows Naaman, having received healing, wasn't going to go back to his nation and be grateful and never touch Israel again. He was going to continue to come send raiding parties in and attack Israel. And, and the war continued. And so Elisha didn't want to have any pact or any, any connection with Naaman himself. So off goes Naaman with all of his goodies. And this is where the story turns tragic. Because Gehazi, who had witnessed so many miracles, he had seen healing of bodies. He'd seen the resurrection of dead. He'd seen the multiplication of foods. He'd seen supernatural deliverance from armies. And in this moment, as Naaman was going off, Gehazi got his eyes off the goodness of God and he got his eyes onto Naaman's gold. And he, started, he got a story. He, he made up a story. He snuck out from Elisha and he chased after Naaman. And when he got to Naaman, he said, oh, just after you left, two prophets turned up. And Elisha has sent me to come and ask you for 75 pounds of silver and, uh, you know, two sets of clothes. And of course, Naaman was only too happy to give him. He gave him double what he asked for. And he gave him servants, soldiers to help him carry back the gold. It was about 150,000 ringgit worth of gold, of, of silver. And he took it back to his house, hid it in his tent. And then Gehazi comes and presents himself to Elisha. And Elisha says, where have you been, Gehazi? And Gehazi says, oh, nowhere. And Naaman says, hmm, wasn't my spirit with you when Naaman got down off his chariot? You could imagine Gehazi's blood run cold. He just lied to a prophet. You don't lie to a prophet, amen, because prophets read your mail. They can see everything. They're called seers. They see stuff, and he saw, and he knew, and you couldn't pull one over him. And when he said this to Gehazi, he didn't just say, man, you shouldn't be chasing after the gold of Naaman, but because you have chased after his gold, you are also going to get his leprosy. And you, not only you, will have his leprosy, but you will pass leprosy onto your children and onto your children's children. What a tragedy. Here was somebody who had the potential to receive Elisha's anointing and perhaps even receive that in a double portion. And instead, because he had his heart in the wrong place, because he had his eyes on the wrong thing, he ended up getting leprosy and it was leprosy that he passed on to the next generations. Wow. So I'm pausing here just to ask you a question. Where's your heart today? 
What's your vision? What are you focused on? What do you think you need? What is it that, that you want? What are you going after? See, God knows, the Bible says, exactly what we need. He knows what we need even before we ask. But he doesn't respond so much to our need as he responds to our faith. And he's got a whole better way of approaching things. And, and he says, if you seek first the kingdom and righteousness, then all these other things will be added to you. Because there are so many that pursue and go after the other things and they're, they're pierced with many a pang, the Bible says. There's all sorts of troubles come with that. But when you seek first the kingdom, God looks after you as well. He provides. I've, I've experienced, I've lived by faith for like 30 years now and sought the kingdom of God. I've seen God's provision and God's blessing in my life as I've made his kingdom my priority. And it's just amazing. We've got such a good God. He's, a, he's an abundant Abundant, generous, good father. Amen. So he, not only is God our provider, but he's our healer. He provides abundantly and he'll heal, the scripture says, of all of our diseases. And, uh, you know, we see Elisha healing lepers. We see Jesus healing lepers. One time 10 lepers came to Jesus, healed the 10 of them. Healed other lepers as they came. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus just simply says, be clean. I'm willing. He's always willing, amen? How many people know he's always willing? You don't have to twist God's arm to heal you. In fact, he's already done it. He's already done the work on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. It's available. Healing is available. It's the children's bread, amen? So it's there for us. But, uh, so he's our healer. But see, we need to note in Scripture that leprosy does not just represent sickness and disease, but leprosy is also a type of sin in Scripture because the Lord would not only have us to be cleansed of all of our diseases, He would have us to be cleansed of all of our sin. It's because it's our sin that separates us from God. It's our sin that will rob us of God's best for our lives. Our sin will separate us from His presence and from His plans and purposes and, and from even His power at work in our lives. Our sin can rob us of, of so much, and our sin will separate us from God for eternity. That's why God sent His Son, Jesus. Jesus came, sinless, and He died on a cross. He took our sin upon himself, died on a cross in our place. He paid the penalty, the death penalty. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So Jesus died. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. So he gave as a gift his son, Jesus, to die on a cross for each one of us, paying the penalty for our sin. And then he asks us to believe, to believe that Jesus came died for us, and that God raised him from the dead, and give him lordship in our life. And the Bible says, you shall be saved. God deals with the sin problem. He blots out our sin. He makes us as though we've never sinned. We receive a free gift. It's a gift of salvation. And with that gift, we have the confidence that we will also spend eternity in the presence of God. And we can walk throughout this life hand in hand with the Lord. Amen. I haven't quite finished my message. I've got one little bit 
that I want to share, but I want to pause at this moment to give you an opportunity to respond to the love of God and this, this, to receive the gift of salvation this morning if you haven't yet done so. And perhaps we could close our eyes, bow our heads. If the musicians could come, that'd be great. And just in this moment, maybe just contemplating God's word. Wow. I could be in relationship with a God who provides. I could be in relationship with a God who heals. And I could be in relationship with a God who saves. You don't need to go to your grave in your sin. And you don't want to go to your grave in your sin when you have a God who, who saves. And he's, he's reaching out his hand to you today because he loves you. The Bible says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So God is reaching out his hand to you today, offering you a free gift. It's a gift of salvation. And you can receive that free gift today. You can receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior and be cleansed of all sin and be made right with God. 